Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We've got a lot to cover. Chapter 14 is quite the chapter. Um, when you begin to look at this chapter, chapters 12 and 13 and 14 are kind of like uh, these three chapters give us a picture of some things that are going on within the tribulation, and it's not necessarily in a chronological sequence. And so without going into all those details, because there's a lot of that, um, I just want to encourage you, I believe chapter 14 is a bit of a forward prophetic view of the end of the tribulation prior to the millennium where God's victory is secured. When we begin to look through this and and kind of get a glimpse of this, in many different ways, this is uh, God bringing and God allowing people, even at that particular time, going through the tribulation, hope that the Lord Jesus Christ will prevail and that the Lord is going to have victory in the midst of all of this turmoil, all the judgment that's taking place, all the pain, all the suffering, all the difficulty. The Lord is going to bring about an end, and he will rule and reign. And so chapter 14 is prophetic, and it literally has a forward look to the final victory of Christ over this world. Walvard puts it this way, chapter 14 brings to a conclusion the material found in the section of chapters 12 through 14. Chapter 12 deals with the important characters of the period, chapter 13 with the wicked rulers of the period, the beasts, and chapter 14 with the ultimate triumph of Christ. All of this material is not chronological, but prepares the way for the climax, which begins in chapter 15. And that climax is the bowls being poured out, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, I don't know if uh, you watched the World Series or not. Did you all watch the World Series? Anybody watch the World Series? Houston, yeah, they won, and that was good for them. Dodgers, amen. I'm a Dallas fan, so, you know, it's kind of... God bless, happy for him, you know. Two in a row, Chad, two in a row, brother. Two. <laughs> we don't want to see that green cheese helmet thing anymore, man. We're <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I'm dating myself a little bit, but do you all remember Kirk Gibson's moment years ago in 1988 when he won or helped win the World Series? Do you remember that? Oh. My brother and I were in high school. And we were watching this game, and uh, you know they were playing the athletics, the A's. Dennis Eckersley was the, the relief pitcher, pitcher for the A's. And he's the best. He was absolutely, at that time, the best. And when he would come into games, the game was over. He hadn't given up a home run uh, in almost the entire season. I think it was in August. Earlier that year was the last time that he had given up a home run prior to the game where Kirk Gibson ended the, ended the game with a home run. I mean, the guy was phenomenal. He had one of those rubber band arms that it looked like he was throwing it from center field and handing it to the catcher. You know what I'm saying? It's hilarious. Well, my brother and I are watching this, and my dad was tired, and so he loved the Dodgers. He grew up uh, when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn, New York, and so he loved the Dodgers, even though he felt betrayed that they moved to Los Angeles and all this kind of stuff. We told him to get over it. It was a long time ago. Root for the Dodgers, you know. And so he went to bed. Game looked like it was over. Eck was coming in. He was tired, went to bed. And my brother and I thought, well, we're going to watch. You know, why not? I was a senior in high school. Baseball was my thing at that point. 
And I looked at my brother, there was two outs, and a guy came up and he ended up walking. Eck walked him, which was unbelievable. Gets to first base. Well, what happened was, Kurt Gibson was the home run hitter for the Dodgers. And Kurt Gibson had gotten hurt. In fact, he hadn't even gone out onto the field to be announced for the World Series. His knees were horrible. His hips were horrible. He could literally barely walk. If you watch video of this, you watch him kind of just kind of strolling up to the plate, but it's clear that he's not well. He had spent the entire game down in the tunnel swinging and just working on trying to hit a ball solidly off of a tee in the tunnel where they warm up before they sometimes get out on the field. And he had told Tommy Lasorda at that particular point that he thought he had one good swing in him. That's the truth. He didn't even go out to the batter's box. Nobody knew that he was going to come up to the plate. The guy walks, and out of the dugout walks Gibson. This was so good. He comes strolling up. The place goes crazy. I mean, everybody's doing their thing. Everybody, this is in L.A. They're going nuts, absolutely nuts. My brother and I kind of sat up on the edge of our seat because the guy walked. All he's got to do is hit a home run, and they've won this game. And I remember looking over at my brother, and I literally said to him, I said, Dave, can you imagine if he actually hit one out? Dave looks at me, oh, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. I said, yeah, but can you imagine? So he comes up there. He swings at one. And I mean, it looked like he had broken both his legs. It was horrible. He fouled one off. Terrible. That doesn't do anything. Well, the last swing is the one that he hit. And as soon as he hit it, I'm a baseball player, so you, you get this vision, right? I can see these things, you know it, you kind of understand. And I could tell that when he hit it, he hit it solidly, even though his hand, he almost did it one-handed, he hit it solidly, he hit it at the right spot, it had the right trajectory, it had the right spin on the ball. And as soon as he hit it, I said, I think he got it! I think he hit it! And all of a sudden they flash and they show this ball and it's going out of the park and it lands in the stand and the place goes berserk. Tommy Lasorda had too much spaghetti at that point in his life. He was jumping around going crazy. I mean, the whole place. And if you remember him running around first base, when he hit second base, he did this. You remember? Dude, come on, people, come on. You know what I'm talking about? He does this. I mean, it was everlasting. It's in all the videos. All you got to do is look up. Kirk Gibson home run, 1988, right? And you'll get this. There's times, folks, when we look at sports or we look at life, we think it's over. It's over. And you don't know how this is going to end up. You're not sure exactly where this is going. You're not sure exactly what's going to happen. You don't know how to actually think about it, and you're wondering what's, what's going to go on here, what's going to happen. And folks, I want you to understand something. With God, it's never over. With the Lord, he will have the victory. No matter how bad it looks, no matter where it goes, no matter whether you can figure it out or not, no matter what it is that you think that you're going through that is insurmountable, you never, ever, ever count God out of the equation. You always keep him at the forefront of the thinking, and you always keep him as part of the equation, because with God, all things are possible. 
And see, chapter 14 is literally about that. You can't imagine, we can't imagine the devastation that's taking place on this earth. And it's almost like chapter 14 was written just to give us a glimpse of the greatness and the holiness of God and that he will have the victory, period. And you can never count God out because he will accomplish it. Don't lose hope. Keep the faith. Never count God out because God's victory is assured. You catch this? Don't lose hope. Keep the faith. Never count God out. Why? Because God's victory is assured, guaranteed. Bank on it. Several different victories are presented in Revelation 14. Look at the victory of the 144,000 in verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the names of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. What we saw and looked at, the 144,000 in chapter 7, they've been given a seal where they have been promised to be protected through the entire tribulation. And I believe that their sealing took place at the beginning of the tribulation. Now we're getting a glimpse of the end of the tribulation and the fact that they have victory throughout the entire tribulation. They have stayed pure. They have walked with God. They have testified about who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is throughout the entire world. What's interesting here is he says the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and he's with the 144,000. And some people want to say that Mount Zion is in heaven. I would suggest that this is Jerusalem. That this is depicting the victory, the final victory that the Lord has. This is after Armageddon. This is when the Lord is establishing his rule and reign on this earth from Jerusalem. And he is standing with the 144,000 literally in Jerusalem. They're singing a new song. That word new means qualitatively, absolutely brand new. And nobody knows that song except them. The idea of them being defiled by a woman is probably, uh, the idea is simply that they had never married due to their specific calling. They had followed the lamb. They had uh, literally rejected all the other different things that the world offers, including marriage itself, in order to walk with the lamb and to fulfill the calling that God had put on their lives in the midst of the tribulation. They follow the lamb no matter where he goes. What a beautiful picture, folks, for us. They've been purchased from among men. The Lord shed his blood for them. They are first fruits to God and the lamb. And I would suggest this is potentially from the tribulation out into the millennium. In other words, they are the first fruits from the tribulation, to be saved and to be brought to the Lord and then to be sealed in a special way in order to be protected throughout the tribulation into the millennium. They're blameless. They're filled with integrity. And here this is a forward-looking 
moment, a forward glimpse at the end of the tribulation right prior to the millennium beginning. Walvert states it this way, preferable is the view that this is a prophetic vision of the ultimate triumph of the Lamb following his second coming when he joins the 144,000 on Mount Zion at the beginning of his millennial reign. What a beautiful truth this is. Folks, you can never count out. You never give up hope. You always keep God as part of the equation because the victory of God is absolutely assured. 144,000 are pictured here at the end of the tribulation after the battles that have taken place, after all the tragedy and after all the judgment that we're about to look at in some part. And they're victorious because they're with the Lamb. They're standing in Mount Zion. God will achieve his victory. You can count on that. Well, second, there's a victory over Babylon. And at this point in chapter 14, verse 6, we now begin to see six angels making proclamation, all of which is concerning judgments from God. And it may be that there are six angels because six is the number of man. Remember, the last three and a half years is about to take place. And the bowls are going to be poured out. The seventh trumpet is sounded during, I believe, the middle of the tribulation. And the seventh trumpet being sounded allows for these bowls now to begin to chronologically take place through the last three and a half years. Now six angels begin to make proclamation and the judgments of God begin to pour down on this earth. And if you remember the entire tribulation, the whole purpose of it is, number one, to deal with sin, to deal with rebellion, and number two, to draw Israel back to himself. And at the end of this three and a half years, at the end of the tribulation, we see that Israel cries out to their Messiah and receives him for who he truly is, Lord and Savior. And the Lord comes and saves them, rescues them in a miraculous, triumphant way. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. And another angel, in verse 8, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. It's interesting, the first angel begins to fly through the mid-heaven and has an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. And that eternal gospel is not the same kind of gospel that we normally think of found in Corinthians. We're not talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're probably talking about the eternal gospel here, which is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of all and that he alone is worthy of honor and glory and ought to be praised. In fact, it's very similar to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes to the Romans, for even though they knew God, he's talking about unbelievers, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. All creation reveals the glory and the power and the majesty of God. Now, when we begin to look at creation, we begin to look at natural revelation, if we want to put it that way, we begin to realize there is a designer because we can look around and we recognize the intricacy of creation. It's amazing. You can look at one cell and it's indescribable what goes on in that one cell. It didn't just happen, folks. 
is something God created. He spoke it into existence. And it doesn't just sustain in and of its own power. It is sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the eternal gospel, I believe, that this angel is now sharing with all of the earth is the gospel, in a sense, the good news that Jesus Christ, God alone, is worthy of honor. He created all things. All things are for his glory. At this particular juncture, within the tribulation, within the seven-year period of time, within the 70th week of Daniel, we have the middle of the tribulation where the abomination of desolation is taking place. The first beast, the Antichrist, is setting himself up in the temple as if he's God Almighty, and it's an abomination. Israel's fleeing into the desert to flee from the persecution. The entire world is taking the mark of the beast, whether on their right forehand or, uh, uh, hand or on their forehead. And in the midst of it, an angel is sent to remind the nations who are worshiping the beast that God alone is worthy of worship. Because God alone is all-powerful, almighty, the king. I think in the midst of this, the second angel pronouncing the doom of Babylon is an amazing situation in and of itself. Some people have asked, well, is America Babylon? And I don't believe that. I believe in a literal view here. I believe this is Babylon. This is out of Iraq. This is rebuilt Babylon. And the Antichrist had made that his headquarters and he moves to Jerusalem uh, when the abomination of desolation takes place and he sets up camp right in the holy city. But Babylon, the literal city, is now said to be fallen to literally be destroyed, to be done. So it's not only a literal city, but it's also a picture of the entire Antichrist's system, whether politically or religiously. There is a one-world government here, there is a one-world rule, and there is a uh, religious system that is pervaded throughout all of earth. And this angel is flying through and simply making the statement that Babylon is now done. Understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to harvest this earth. He is going to bring judgment. He is righteous. He is holy. And as a result, he will not allow sin to flourish. There is a time of end for all of this. And he will then rule and reign. We're going to see more about Babylon in chapter 18. Walvert again puts it this way, inasmuch as the context here seems to deal primarily with the end of the Great Tribulation and the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, the reference seems to be the literal city. In other words, Babylon will fall and it'll be done with. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put an end to it. So there's victory of the 144,000. There's victory with regard to the Lord over Babylon, but there's also victory over the beast. And in verse 9 of chapter 14, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever 
whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. A warning is now given by another angel concerning worshiping the beast. And again, this is a picture of what God's final victory will be, that the beast will not be able to stand. And anybody that worships the beast will not be able to stand. In fact, they will suffer eternal consequences for worshiping the beast, the Antichrist. He makes it very clear in the midst of this that their suffering is an eternal one. It is the second death. It is a picture of the lake of fire itself, which is called the second death. Folks, what a horrific circumstance. You know, the beauty of it today is that we have an opportunity to receive, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for who he truly is, that is Lord and Savior. And the promise that goes with it is that we will be saved. And it's an unequivocal promise. It's not based on our works, either past, present, or future. It is based on the word of God. And the promise that comes with it is eternal life, meaning that we will never face the second death. We will never face the lake of fire. Now, obviously, he's talking about people within the tribulation who have received the mark of the beast, who are worshiping the beast. They're not worshiping the one true God. But understand that today, there are many who do not worship the Lamb, who do not worship the Lord. And if you die today without having been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, then understand that there is coming a day where you will stand before the Lord himself, you will bow your knee, and you will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And in the midst of that, because you have not been forgiven, you will be thrown into hell, and it, which is the second death, the lake of fire. Folks, let's get serious about this for a second. We got people all around us that are facing this. How are we yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ? How are we walking with him? How are we submitting to him and saying, Lord, use our lives in whatever way you choose, knowing that the Lord's victory is absolutely assured, knowing that we have the truth and the hope of the great testimony of Christ himself, that he died for us, that he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven when we believe in him. Are we willing to share with others the truth of the reality that salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone? Because not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means eternal suffering, eternal hell, folks. That's mind-boggling. It's hard to even wrap your mind around it. Understand that in this context, what he's talking about very clearly are people who are worshiping the beast and have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God today we still have an opportunity to receive the Lord and be forgiven and to be cleansed so that we can know what our future is, that it is heaven forever, enjoyment with the Lord forever, rather than the consequence, which is ultimately hell, the lake of fire, the second death. I love what he says in verse 13 about those who are blessed, those who have believed, those who have persevered, those saints who walk with the Lord, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He gives basically three things. He says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Now think about that. Blessed means that they're filled to all the fullness of God. That God is their satisfaction and God is their satisfaction alone. The things of this world mean nothing to them compared to the Lord. Blessed are the dead. And then it says that they may rest from their labors. In other words, all the service, all the persevering, all the things that they're doing for the Lord as they're walking with the Lord through this horrific time, that there's coming a moment of rest and their deeds will follow them. I love that because the Lord knows exactly what they've done and haven't done. The Lord is going to reward. The Lord is going to honor. The Lord knows exactly what, and we could put it in our day, every one of us has done for him. And we can know, 1 Corinthians 3 and other passages, that there is a reward. There is a rewarding of believers for what we yield to the Lord and allow him to do in and through our lives. The works that he's planned for us before the foundation of the earth. The opportunity to walk with him day by day, moment by moment, and to receive from him a blessing and reward. Not only eternal life, but also reward. And here he makes it very clear. These precious saints who have walked through this horrific time, who have not worshipped the beast, who have not received the mark of the beast, are blessed. And even though they give their lives for the Lord, the Lord says that they're going to rest and their deeds are going to follow after them, indicating that they will be rewarded for walking with him. Well, in chapter 14, verses 14 and following, there's victory over the earth. And this is an interesting passage. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I believe this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we're given here a picture of the Lord himself bringing judgment onto the earth. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Here we have this picture of the final victory of Christ at the end of the tribulation over the whole earth, the reaping of the earth. All rebellion is put down. All of those who come against the Lord will be reaped. In other words, will be judged. The Lord himself swings the sickle, indicating the divine judgment that takes place. What's interesting is that when we talk about ripe here, that word ripe means literally rotten, past its point of being fruitful or good. It has the idea of being dry or withered up. And what he's saying is there's a point now where all this sin, all this rebellion is going to be dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he is the righteous judge and he will reap the earth because the harvest is actually past time and the fruit is dried up and it's rotten. He goes on and he makes it very clear that the entire earth is being judged But in verse 17, he gives us a view of a second reaping, which in effect is an intensification of the more general picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ himself does. This other angel comes out and begins to reap. And we're given this picture again at the end of the tribulation of the battle of Armageddon and the absolute devastation that takes place. This war that 
the Lord himself puts an end to. Blood being spattered to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles around Jerusalem. A lot of people have wondered, is that literally to the horse's bridle or is the horse laying down and maybe because the horse was killed, it's to his bridle. I think the way to understand it is that when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes and he begins to put an end to this army of rebellious individuals against himself and against his people, Israel, the Jewish people, that he begins to literally reap, he begins to literally harvest the earth and the idea of the grapes being trodden has the idea of the splatter of blood. It is horrific to think about going literally to the horse's bridles. So much death, so much destruction. The terrible picture Walvard says here, given of the bloodletting which will mark the end of the age, may include various phases of the battle taking place in the great tribulation and the climax of Christ's victory when he judges the nations at its end. Don't lose hope. Keep the faith. Never count God out. God's victory is assured. Folks, chapter 14 is a picture. The 144,000 of the angels flying in the midheavens to once again declare the gospel, the good news in this sense, in this context, speaking of the fact that God alone is worthy of worship and he is worthy of glory and honor. The picture of the reaping of the entire earth as God brings an end to rebellion within this world. Don't lose hope. Keep the faith. Never count out. Never count God out because God's victory is assured. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for us as believers, verses 54 through 57, when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died and he shed his blood so that when we believe in him, we may have life and life everlasting. We experience the Lord's victory. Do you realize that today we can experience the Lord's victory? We can experience it today. If you're an unbeliever, you can experience his victory because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise with that is that you will have eternal life because the Lord is able to forgive. As believers, we understand that we can walk in that victory every moment of every day. And victory isn't something we have to achieve. It's not something we have to strive for. It's something we walk in because Christ already has accomplished it. Paul writes, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, speaking of our bodies, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gives us the victory. How? Through our works, through our efforts, efforts, through what we do? Absolutely not. Through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as unbelievers, we get rescued out of the domain of darkness. We get translated into the kingdom of light. We become citizens of the king. We become children of Christ, of God himself. We were once far off and now we're brought near. How? By good works? No, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. And as believers, we can walk in that every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. Don't lose hope. Keep the faith. Never count God out because God's victory 
is assured. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 